Lots to talk about this morning on Inside Politics on the panel. Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Rob Shaw. Later, the Minister of Transportation, Claire Trevenis in studio, followed by her predecessor, Kamloops South MLA, Todd Stone. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics. Thank you for tuning in. Bit of a soggy day here in Kamloops, which is great on the wildfire front. Pleasure to be joined by Keith Baldry and Rob Shaw. Good morning, gentlemen. Hi, Jane. Uh, guys, ICBC off the top. Uh, one of those things, I think ICBC and real estate, probably the two most nonpartisan issues in the province. They're going to elicit a pretty strong response no matter who you vote for. Uh, David Eby's been talking about this for a long time, rewarding good drivers and punishing bad drivers. Uh, he's teasing an announcement to flesh that out with some details in a matter of a week or two. Uh, Keith, to you first, uh, what do you think's coming down the pipe, and, and is this going to be a case of the devil's really in the details? Well, I think... Well, what's coming down the pike is going to be a rate increase. They're going to apply to the BC Utilities Commission, which is just sort of a formality. Uh, but there's probably going to be the highest rate increase that we've seen for, for some time. And then he's going to, uh, EB wants, as you mentioned, uh, change the, the rate system to more accurately reflect uh, a system that rewards good drivers and, and sharply uh, penalizes uh, bad drivers. I'm not sure, though, as much that much can be done on that type of change that will... Uh, address the enormous deficit problem ICBC has run into. I mean, they still got a, a huge problem with escalating number of claims and the escalating uh, and steady increase in the cost it takes to repair automobiles. I mean, that, that's one of the things that IC is vexing not only ICBC, but other, other uh, uh, insurance uh, systems is that the cost of fixing modern automobiles is so much higher than it used to cost to fix uh, automobiles before. All the electronic systems that are, that are part of the cars now uh, it's, it costs a lot more to fix a 2013 uh, uh, vehicle than it costs uh, to fix a, a 1990 vehicle, and that's that's a problem that's vexing ICBC and David Eby. And I'm not sure just changing the system to penalize bad drivers is going to be enough to fix it. Yeah, I, I wonder about that too, Rob. But we've talked about, about this a little before. But I think the real key to whatever's coming down the pipe will be how do they define who is a good driver and gets these uh, quote unquote benefits, and who is a bad driver to get punished. Yeah, we had a pretty good idea what EB's going to do here because there was a very detailed white paper on this, and uh, it escaped most people's attention. But I guarantee that this is going to tick people off because what we're talking about doing here is altering the way that you get insurance discounts and all of us think we're good drivers until we're in an accident and then you're going to be labeled as a bad driver under potentially this system so here are some of the changes because I mean, these are the these are the things that i expect to see eb say mm. it's going to take you 10 years to get a free at fault crash rather than the current three years that's one of the things that's on the table uh if you get a crash you're going to take uh 20 years of uh, no of clean driving to get back to your full discount position uh i mean there's there's a whole bunch of changes like this if you're a senior and you get into an accident you're going to lose your seniors discount uh by your second crash um if you have your kids here, here's one that i think these are kind of boomerangs that are going to come back and they're going to really tick people off uh, if you, ICBC wants you to list all the people who might drive your vehicle on a list. And if you don't, and there's an accident, you get hit with a massive fee. And that includes an extra fee if your kids have taken your car, say they're learning, and they are out and they're not on your list. So, so 
those are how the government is going to define bad drivers. They're going to eliminate, there's a potential surcharge for people who are new to British Columbia mm. who get driver's insurance. They're going to hike percent, potentially, your driver penalty points. Those are the things that David Eby is considering. And I think maybe the public doesn't see those things coming. And maybe, you know, the, the idea of being a bad driver is something we're all happy to, to see those people penalized until we realize that we are bad drivers. If you, yeah. You're going to get hit by those. If Eby follows through on, on some of these uh, proposed changes, the, the NDP will suddenly... Uh, be viewed as the public as taking total ownership of ICBC in a way that the Liberals never did. Yeah. Um, this was uh, your, your your car insurance rates, and the system didn't really change that much under the BC Liberals. In fact, they could be accused of artificially keeping rates down. But if EB follows through with some of these aggressive proposals, uh, they are going to take uh, ownership of ICBC, which is already an unpopular crown corporation, and make it uber unpopular. And that could become a very big political problem for the NDP. People forget when icbc was first introduced in the 1970s it was very unpopular with a number of people uh mm -hmm. it was uh it was a controversial creation by the by the ndp subsequent governments decided it was better to keep it rather than get rid of it but it is about to become i think a p considerable political millstone around the neck of the ndp if uh, if eb pushes through with some of these big changes he's also ruled out privatization sort of pointing to the saskatchewan government insurance model of course a push by uh the insurance corporation uh, to privatize the model for obvious reasons uh, from their part. But uh, there's going to be a, a sort of a kickback saying, hey, we need more competition, we need to lower prices that way. Is there an argument to be made there, Rob? Well, I mean, it's a philosophical, ideological issue for the Democrats, as Keith was saying. This is, you know, not some, they don't want to get rid of ICBC. They want to keep it. So privatization was never on the table. The Insurance Bureau has lobbied somewhat aggressively in the public to try and make that argument. They have some studies out saying you get better deals uh, if you were a really good driver. I mean, you could make a case that a really good driver might get uh, a lesser, less expensive insurance package, but the rest of us, um, to go back to my original point, the rest of us who think we're good drivers yeah. are, would get hit a bit harder. And so, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't even think that the the liberals would really follow through with getting rid of ICBC, even though every now and again you hear them kind of mumble about some type of structural review of the future of ICBC. Uh, I think it's here to stay. And the idea of privatization is just one of those things that you hear uh, tossed around, but uh, I'm not sure any government is going to have the jam to do that. Although we know this government uh, doesn't doesn't really like reviews that much, so <laughs> uh, Keith, uh, the changes, of course, coming into effect next year on on uh, injury claims, uh, that kind of thing. We're looking at uh, legal costs; they're exceeding uh, the dollar ability to run the organization. But uh, with changes coming next year, uh, is there any momentum? Do you think that they're going to be able to get a handle on this this thing that uh, David Eby a little while ago called a dumpster fire? Canalis, who's a, a retired veteran civil servant, is keeping a close eye on, on this, and he has intervener status, actually, at the BC Utilities Commission uh, when it comes to ICBC and BC Hydro. He doesn't think uh, that what the NDP is proposing to do is enough to fix what he sees as a structural um, deficit problem within that corporation, and, and it, it is a part of... Uh, as I mentioned, escalating number of claims. Uh, I mean, there's more and more distracted driving accidents, basically, and they've got to crack down on that because that is the number one increase, and that's, that's basically, you know, t um, 
run into each other's uh, tail end collisions, which cost money to fix. It's uh, increasing number of accidents, increasing cost to fix vehicles. And uh, they're trying to get a handle on the litigation costs, which is a big component as well. And I think they're going to make some headway on that. And I don't think that would be as unpopular as some of the things Rob talked about, which uh, really starts addressing your driving behavior. I mean, people will take that very personally, that uh, they're seen as uh, not necessarily being as safe as they think they are or really having to earn over a long period of time some sort of merits to prove you're a safe driver. But, you know, capping injury costs at a, at a more reasonable amount uh, and sort of elbowing the lawyers out of the process, I don't think that's going to be as unpopular as some of the other changes that Evie's talking about. Okay, uh, Rob, before we go to a break, I uh, just want to quickly change issues and ask you about uh, the seniors report that came out from Isabel McKenzie. Uh, an interesting one saying private care homes where seniors are more likely to die uh, there in hospital. Uh, doesn't really answer the question why. Uh, what did you make of it and how do you think the government's going to handle this one? Yeah, well, it kickstarted a bit of a debate over public and private seniors' care. I mean, it's worth remembering that two-thirds of the seniors' care beds in this province are in privately run facilities, even though they're subsidized by the public. And that is something that the New Democrats in opposition hated. And they said that, that private companies should not be trying to make a profit off of seniors. But when you talk to the New Democrats now... Uh, they realize that it's almost too big to change, that uh, when they're putting $500 million into improving seniors' care in the last budget over three years to try and bring the care standards up, most of that money is going to private uh, operators who, who need to bring their care standards up. So it, I think it's an, another example of the philosophy of the New Democrats, what they said in opposition, and what they would really want to do, which is run the private operators out and have a public system, is not financially feasible, it's not practical, and they're going to have to reconcile with what they do on that issue. And this, is, this report highlights you know, an area of concern and gets people talking. There's no real conclusion on how you fix it. But um, it, it causes people to look at the NDP for a second and say, wait, are, are, you, are we going back to all public um, seniors' beds, which would be a logistical you know, mountain to climb? And, and I think the answer from the Democrats very quietly is no. And that's something people might not be catching on to right away. All right, uh, let's take a quick break here on Inside Politics, and we'll continue our conversation with Keith and Rob on the other side here on Radio NL. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. We're talking to Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Rob Shaw. Uh, guys, a big fight over union and corporate, uh, corporate donations ended up with both being banned, sort of a new world order as far as how political parties raise money. Elections BC out this week with an update. Uh, the NDP, uh, although down overall, have raised more money than both the Liberals and the Greens. Uh, Liberals down by a lot. Uh, I guess the, I sort of look at this in two ways. Number one, uh, maybe there's a question, does this new sort of world order as far as donations just favor the NDP or perhaps Keith is it a case of uh, you're the ruling party in power so donations do tend to flow more to you than the others yeah, there's probably a little truth in both of those uh, statements, uh, Shane. It, it is true. The NDP, you know, they said going into this that their strength was individual donations, you know, and it's true now, the first six months of this year, uh, they got, uh, you know, 8,600 individual donations to the Liberals' 4,400, and as a result, they raised considerably more money. Now, a number of people pointed to me on uh, Twitter when I put these numbers out that over time, uh, at the federal level, uh, it was the Conservatives now have over 
overtaken everyone in terms of fundraising at the federal level, particularly with individual donations. So it's not mm-hmm. a case necessarily that the left has an advantage. Right now, the NDP has an advantage, and I think part of that is what you just said there, Shane. They are the ruling party, and it's easier for them, I uh, think, uh, to get people's attention and, and to get money. It's also interesting. I went through just hopscotch through the list of donors uh, to the NDP, and they really hammered home a system where a lot of people are contributing on a monthly, regular basis. Like Adrian Dix, for example, is $100 a month, comes out of his bank account every month. And a number of other uh, New Democrats have the same system, whether it's 10, 50, or 100. I think they've got that system up and running to a greater degree than the B.C. Liberals did, because the Liberals, for years, existed on corporate uh, donations. And they're coming into this sort of uh, new, and they don't have a, a, I think, is cohesive a system that the NDP has, has developed over a number of years, and that's why the NDP is a, a big advantage right now. Well, Rob, let's get you in on this. Uh, obviously, uh, not the ideal situation for the Liberals, but as Keith sort of alluded to there, perhaps they could evolve fairly quickly. Yeah, I mean, they did have a leadership race during this time, right, which does bring the party money through fees and that type of thing, but everyone is distracted running campaigns and signing up members. And so it's not, I think the Liberals will do better in the next six months uh, than they are right now. But I think he's right that you see in these numbers a discipline within the NDP to sign people up on the $100 monthly plan, which gets you to the $1,200 maximum limit for a personal donation at the end of the year. And all the MLAs done that and you better believe that people who have political jobs uh, at the legislature here and for the government are kicking money back to the party that's that is an unspoken uh, rule and, uh, and it existed for the liberals as well so the NDP have that kind of advantage the liberals I mean there's MLAs who aren't even donating to the party let alone longtime party supporters they're still in this world and you see this when you look at their fundraisers where Kevin Falcon helped organize a fundraiser recently where the tickets were a thousand dollars so they, they're, they're still in that kind of, let's see if we can get a couple people to hit their maximum limit on a fundraiser type thing, uh, rather than the monthly stable uh, system that the NDP is setting up. And I guess, on top of all this, we have to remember that parties are getting public money. So during this period, they all got a yeah. million dollars each, basically, the Liberals and NDP. The Greens got all, half a million. Um, and, and that is, you know, the core, I think, of, of uh, their financial stability now is that public that, that transitionary money that the that the government's going to give them. So it, there's a lot of things going on. I, I guess finally I just say, you know, the idea that we have eliminated um, cash for access fundraisers, I don't think that's actually true. And, I, and if you yeah. go on and look at what the parties are doing, you still see, um, you know, John Horgan and his entire cabinet showing up and raising 50 grand at the Granville Island Hotel uh, for tickets that are $300 a pop. So you can buy a ticket to meet them. You still see the Andrew Wilkinson holding a meet and greet for $500 a ticket at the Point Grey Golf Club. I mean, I don't think people should be confused at the idea that somehow we've eliminated cash for access. If you if you didn't like the idea of people buying your, uh, the premier and the cabinet, well, it hasn't gone anywhere. That's still going on. It's just now you there's a little form online. You can see exactly how much money they raised. So about some changes and some things are still the same. Yeah. Uh, we only have a few minutes left uh, with you guys this morning. I just want to jam this one in here real quick just because we have sort of a situation where we're between sittings and, and a bit of a lull in, in political news. But uh, how do you how do each of you rate the three parties and in, in, in how they've been so far in this year since we saw that historic change in government? Uh, Keith, do you think the NDP, Liberals and Greens have all sort of gained, lost? Where do you, where do you kind of position the three of them? 
I think the NEP's had a pretty good first year in power. I, I before said that I'd give them a B. I mean, they've had some problems, but uh, I think by and large they've <coughs> they've taken the government rather comfortably. <coughs> I think the Liberals have had a harder time. I think they've picked up the pace uh, now that they've settled their leadership problem, but I'd give them a, a C plus. And the Greens, uh, you know, they say a lot and, and stamp their feet a lot. And they're a breath of fresh air, I think, in the legislature. It's nice to have a third party there, but uh, I'm not sure they're anywhere near the impact of the Liberals or the NDP. And I'd, I'd give them a letter grade a little lower than the NDP as well, probably a C plus. So all three have taken to the sort of new positions, new roles, and they've done it to varying degrees. But uh, it's interesting to watch the transition. It's been fascinating. Yeah, it has been. Uh, Rob, how do you how do you see things? Yeah, I mean, I agree. The NDP, uh, I don't, they haven't had any major disasters. It's, a, it's been a good first year for them. Uh, the Liberals are struggling. They continue to struggle to transition to opposition. Just some MLAs don't appear to be cut out for it, or they don't, they don't like that role. They, they find it cheap. Criticism all the time. They want to solve the problems. And some of them just aren't making that transition. So they're, the Liberals are, are not doing well, I don't think, of, of financially. Um, logistically, uh, in the in the legislature, and Andrew Wilkinson, we're all watching to see if he picks that up this fall. And then the Greens. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> how often do we hear that you know uh, the apocalypse is looming, the Judgment Day is looming, that the Greens are going to pass judgment on this government, um, get them to move on something, and and, and it ha- hasn't happened, or they the NDP find a way around it. We're we're watching for the climate plan this fall from the NDP, which is apparently the next massive threat. Um, you know, from the Greens as to whether they lose confidence in this government if this climate plan isn't what they want to see. And I, uh, I, you know, <laughs> I, so I don't know how much the Greens are able to move the NDP anymore. I think the NDP have figured them out a bit. And uh, yeah. they have. There's a fascinating dynamic here at the legislature. Yeah, and by the way, you're arguing about liberal ministers who have a hard time transitioning to opposition. You could definitely make the, the counter-argument. There's been some NDP MLAs have had a hard time transitioning into government as well, especially a couple of cabinet ministers. Yep. Uh, by the way, reflecting back uh, on, on the uh, election donations, just because we're talking about the Greens here, we focused a little bit on the NDP and the Liberals, but the Greens, who really lobbied hard for union and corporate donations to kind of help them out uh, and, and get a sense that they thought it was going to be a big booster, they didn't really gain a whole lot. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious what their fate will be over the next few years, not just on, on the donations front, but on their overall sort of where they will stand and come the, the ashes of the next election. Well, I, 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 you know, that's a very good question. I mean, there's uh, different scenarios. A lot of people, a lot of observers, veteran observers, think the Greens, uh, this was their, their best it's, they're going to do in that last election. The things uh, <coughs> sort of went the right way for them in three critical ridings. And then that's it. They're not going to, you know, they're going to top out at that or potentially even lose those seats once the Liberals make a rebound. And a lot of people, you know, a number of people think the Greens took a lot of votes from the Liberals as sort of a one-time protest vote. And that maybe those voters go back to uh, the traditional voting uh, routes, which is uh, to the B.C. Liberals. On the other hand, you know, the Greens now have more money than they've ever had because of the, the tax subsidy. They've got a higher profile than they've ever had. But I think it's an open question whether the Greens are, you know, this is as good as it's going to get for them or whether they can actually make a, a real breakthrough under first-past-the-post. If we get to proportional representation as a result of the referendum this fall, that's a different story. That's when the Greens can actually, I think, make a mark much greater than they can under the current voting system. Uh, last word to you, Rob, before we go. Yeah, no, I, I actually thought the Greens did okay on their fundraising. I mean, they functionally don't even exist outside of, in, in certain parts of the province. Mm. They raise 
almost $300,000. You know, they're at the point of slightly, you know, maybe they're at a third of the, the Liberals uh, for, you know, three MLAs who exist on southern Vancouver Island. Um, that's not that bad for them. And then they mm. got half a million from the public. So they're doing great in their own, in their own way. Um, but I agree with Keith. The, the question is, like, have they peaked? And we all kind of watch that. And that's the, that'll be the story of the Greens and what happens in the next year or so. Absolutely. Uh, gentlemen, uh, it was a short one today, and I look forward to talking to you again uh, next week. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Shane. Thanks, Shane. There we go. That's uh, Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Suns, Rob Shaw. We're going to take a quick break here on Inside Politics. On the other side, Transportation Minister Claire Trevena is in studio. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined for the second week in a row by a cabinet minister here in studio. This morning we have Transportation Minister Claire Trevena. Claire, welcome. Thank you very much, Shane. It's a pleasure to be here as always. Yeah, so uh, I guess first things first, uh, what are you doing in the interior? Well, I'm going to, starting off in Kamloops, I'm going to be going out to see some of the construction we've got going on through the Okanagan and down into um, down into Kootenays, seeing some of the work that's happened, some yeah. of what's happening, have a look at the inland ferries and just uh, spending a couple of days on the road. Okay, and you take a look at the sort of the highway east of Kamloops and some of the projects you got going there? We're going to be going down towards Vernon to see Stickle Road. I okay. know it's been that. That's our, our first priority, so it's heading down towards the Okanagan this time. Uh, we'll be coming back obviously along Highway 1. I know that there's a huge amount of interest naturally. I'm yeah. really interested in making sure that we are moving forward as fast as possible on Highway 1, and yeah. so uh, that is always in my, in my spotlight. That said, there has been some delays there, which has frayed some nerves in this part of the world. Uh, so, uh, 2019 still the target there or what's going on? That's what we're looking at. We've got the three segments around Chase and then we've got the three segments around Salmon Arm. We're looking at... Uh 2019, that's the intention. We're obviously doing some negotiations still with uh, First Nations and making sure that the accommodation, everybody is really uh, comfortable that we're going the right way. Uh, we've also been talking, obviously, around Chase. We've been talking with the community in Chase about what uh, we can do to make the road through their community uh, that much better. So uh, there is always continuing negotiations and making sure, but yes, we're looking at 2019 and hopefully uh, we'll be able to start seeing some work happening there. Okay, uh, the new community benefit agreement uh, that was announced recently by the by the Premier, uh, we know or have some details as of Friday about what the Patella Bridge situation is going to look like. Okay, so that provided some more clarity and some fine print, but questions remain sort of how this will impact the Trans-Canada work, which has been named as one of the projects that will apply. So uh, we know costs are going to go up on the Patella Bridge, even though the government is saying, okay, that's still within the existing budget. But what do we know about the impacts on the number one? I mean, are you going to have to go back and take some of that work back to square one from a labor perspective? Or do you have any idea how much costs are going to rise? Give me some idea what you're looking at there. Well, we don't think costs are going to rise. I and mean, we've budgeted on the patella we've budgeted for the community benefit agreement to be included that was always there we knew it was going to be coming so that was part of that when you look at 1.377 billion dollars that's a lot of money we don't want it to go beyond that uh, when we've seen these benefit agreements work in the past and they've been working on hydro since wac bennett through to the present day uh, 
we get everything on time and on budget. So they are a very effective way of making sure that projects are coming in on time, on budget. I have a mandate uh, direction to accelerate the fall any of the Trans Canada. I want to make sure that happens. I want to make sure that happens as well on budget. So we're very mindful of that, very mindful of the timelines. Uh, it won't be renegotiating anything. Uh, I th think the frustration is that projects haven't gone to tender yet. So mm. we are at that place where we're we're pushing to start work in 2019 on a, a, a swath of projects, I'd say, on TransCanada. Now, critics would turn around and point, to use Hydra as an example, but critics would turn around and point to the project labor agreement uh, back in the 90s on the Island Highway, which was a bit of a gong show. Uh, can we directly correlate some of the issues that popped up there with what might happen on TransCanada EC Kamloops or no? I think it's a different interpretation as somebody who lives on the island, works on the island, has many friends who live and work on the island. Well, it's Obviously, a great highway. It's a great highway. But it and, changed and in scope and it changed in sort of timeline and, and etc. Well, that was that was 20 years ago. I'm not mm. going to revisit that history. What no, I'm no. looking at is what we are doing now. But does that provide an object lesson for what we might see here? So it's I, I, I absolutely, I think that what we're looking at now is how we can make sure that we have the benefits for local businesses and for local people. And that's where the direction is. We're looking at budgets that will be reflected of ensuring that we get those benefits. Uh, we are not looking at massive inflated budgets. We're looking at budgets that will ensure those benefits. And that means really good jobs for local people. Those are the two things we really want to see and good training for people. One of the reasons we're doing this is we know there's going to be skill shortage and this will be a real way to address that mm. skill shortage going forward. Uh, you mentioned that the budget hopefully will not change, but how do you factor in that? Because we we learned that it could you know up to 7% uh, increase costs. So do you have have a firm figure about how the community benefit agreement, a dollar figure that will impact the TransCanada work and thus know it's going to be within budget or are you just sort of hoping it's going to be within budget? Well, we're saying 4 to 7% is yeah. the, the part of the budget that will be for community benefits. And so that's what we're building into the budget, that 4 to 7%. We know that initially some contractors may be a bit cautious and want to inflate their uh, bids because they don't know how it's going to work. There is going to be that inevitably. But I think that as we see it move forward that people see how it works and how it does benefit both the project as well as literally as the community that we are seeing that local high we are seeing that money go back into community we are seeing you know people going off and getting trained for for the future so I, I think that that will really really play well that people will just uh, I hope people get as excited about it as I do <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a great opportunity for BC okay you say build into the budget the budget's existing now so how does that work I mean we have a finite dollar figure if costs are going to go up four to seven percent I mean that's got to have an impact somewhere well we, as I say we're looking at that as the four to seven percent is within the budget Budget, uh, that you know, we are looking at projects going forward that some haven't gone out to tender yet, mm. and I say that's the frustration. Yeah. So you know, the figure that we have will include that four to seven percent um, that that flex area. Okay. Uh, the other issue I had with the community benefit agreement is uh, you'd mentioned getting apprenticeships and guaranteeing certain skilled labor, that kind of thing. And there's that hundred kilometer radius rule, uh, and that's going to vary in impact from area to area. For example, down in Patella, obviously, hundred kilometers is going to mean a little bit more as far as the available workers with the population, etc. It's going to be a different picture up here because there's a smaller population, less urban centers, etc. Do you have concerns there or no? Absolutely not. I think this is one of the real benefits for it is that we want to train local people. We want to make sure where possible people don't have to travel to go to work. They don't have to follow the job, that they can be working 
near their own community within that 100 kilometer radius it's it's really gives people the opportunity to stay at home rather than have to mm. go to where the work is some of those people follow the work though some people do yes and uh, in that respect there is the opportunity when contractors come to bid that there can be uh, named hires if they are looking at supervisors and managers and so on uh, but i think that what we're looking at is we have I think it's $15 billion worth of infrastructure in the next three years we're going to be building around BC. Mm. There will be work in people's communities, and I think that people will be able to find the work that they need, and there'll be the training there. About $3.7 billion now, though, with the... No, I'm joking. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, since I got you, I want to talk to you about Uber. Uh, maybe not as big a deal here in Kamloops as, say, Metro Vancouver. Uh, but it occurred to me that, I mean, you really stress safety and taking the time to get it right and all that kind of stuff. But um, is it really safer to take the time? Because there's been a lot of points raised, for example, about from Mad Canada recently saying, hey, if you have more options to get people home, that means less drunk driving. Uh, and taxis are notorious in leaving people standing. It's, that industry is mind-boggling to me about how many customers they leave behind. But that said, is it safe not to have Uber as opposed to having it? I mean... Well, I mean, I, I understand Mad Canada. I understand anybody who is frustrated and wants to see more options. I'm, I'm, I'm solidly behind Mad Canada. You don't want people on the roads who have been drinking at mm. all. But what we're doing is we are looking at... One is obviously the safety, but our initial moves of that increase of 15%, we're going to see more cabs. We're going to see more cabs in Kamloops as well as Metro Vancouver, as well as Nanaimo. That will be increasing. So I think that that will start to address it. But nobody wants to get it behind the, you know, get in a vehicle where you aren't assured of that safety whether you are whether it's the driver whether it's the vehicle whether it is for the passenger um, and also the dri other drivers on the road we need yeah. to make sure that safety comes to first but uber drivers are safe in so many other jurisdictions around the world so why can't we just say okay this model over in brisbane australia or in uh, chicago uh, illinois that works for us we're going to kind of tinker and bring it over as a best practice i mean it, we have so many examples of how it works well it may work for the corporation uh but it doesn't necessarily work for British Columbia for a number of reasons. One is that we do have safety first in many levels, whether it is uh, criminal record checks, cameras in cars, uh, insurance, which is one of the really big ones, and mm. that is the, to be honest, the biggest delay. We're bringing in legislation this fall, uh, but it will take some time for ICBC to get its product ready. So that is a big one. So our, our system isn't like Chicago. It isn't like New York. It is BC's system. We're modernizing it, and and when we have modernized it, when we brought in the legislation, those companies who choose not to apply now, although they could apply now, who choose not to apply now, may choose to apply to drive on, on BC's roads. Uh, to go back to the safety issue, because one of the things I find really ironic is in a two-year frame, we're going to bring in, we've tackled, figured out, and we're going to bring in legal marijuana, which has a host of its own safety concerns. But we've managed to do that in a two-year time frame. We're at year three or four on Uber, and we still can't get that done. That, to me, is just kind of a head-scratcher. Well, that is, uh, I'm not going to get into the federal politics of how quickly... Uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, we figured out a complex issue here, and we haven't been able to figure out Uber, which is weird. Well, I, I think, no, I think that uh, that's a very complex issue that was done federally, and I'll leave the federal government uh, to do its own thing. <laughs> and I look at back at Uber. I mean, Uber and the other rideshare companies were in the market in 2012. So there were five years of a previous government to try and sort it out. They did nothing. We are, within a year, modernizing the, the system to 
allow these companies to come in. Now we're also tackling with ICBC will then be looking at insurance. I think that we as a government have acted as fast as we can after a five-year time lag when something could have happened, nothing happened. Do you have any marijuana concerns on the roads? Uh, I mean, there's obviously going to be a lot of things impacted here and there has been some concerns raised about drug-impaired drivers. Is there anything sort of in your bailiwick as transportation minister that you're working on currently? Right well, again, again, I'm obviously concerned about safety, but it's the Solicitor General's portfolio to look at that uh, on the road, but we're working closely on that. Whether it is impaired driving from alcohol, from marijuana, or distracted driving from using a cell phone, we've got to make sure our roads are safe and uh, ensure that we have enforcement to prevent uh, people doing that if people aren't sensible enough to not do it in the first place. Uh, last question. Uh, speed limits on the Coquihalla, they got the, uh, for the word escapes me, they're fluctuating. <laughs> yeah. uh, are you going to stick behind that or, or is that something you're looking at reassessing? I, variable speed limits, I think, work. Uh, they work for bad weather and they work to deal with congestion. I think various speed limits will stay. Okay, perfect. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for coming in. Pleasure to see you. Appreciate it, Shane. Thank you. <laughs> there we go. Transportation Minister Claire Trevenna and former Transportation Minister Todd Stone has been listening in on the conversation. He'll join us with his thoughts right after this Inside Politics on Radio NL. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. From both sides of the floor, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back. You just heard what Claire Trevena, the Minister of Transportation, had to say uh, specifically about Uber, uh, Highway 1 work uh, east of Kamloops. Uh, Todd Stone's been listening in, uh, the former Transportation Minister and the MLA for Kamloops South. Uh, Todd, one of the baffling things about that conversation is, and, and you heard it, is that we know that this new labour agreement is going to raise costs, 4 to 7%. We know this. Yet with the Patella Bridge, somehow that's going to stick within the existing budget. And yet in Highway 1 work, which uh, for some reason, a lot of these components are in the air, fuzzy, we're not sure where they're going, uh, not going to start till 2019, we're going to see increased labour costs, all this kind of stuff. But somehow, it's all going to stay within budget. Is that reality to you, or what's going on here? Well, I, I, you know, I'm struggling to, to uh, figure out where to begin here. I haven't just <laughs> listened to uh, to Claire's interview there. There's kind of two big issues uh, that I think, you know, she really needs to uh, to come clean on. One is this whole concept of, um, you know, adding in up to 7% of, of, of a net new cost on a project that that uh, somehow, uh, in her words, doesn't uh, isn't going to materially impact the budget, that right. you can still deliver the project as as planned, as scoped, as, uh, as budgeted. Uh, but, you know, don't worry, we're just going to add an extra seven percent cost in, uh, uh, and the other uh, you know issue is is she keeps talking about accelerating projects on the Trans Canada Highway. I, 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 you know when when we look at the list of projects that uh, are on the Ministry of Transportation's website this morning, yeah, uh, the the projects for the Trans Canada Highway uh, east of Kamloops uh, are are all projects that were announced by me uh, two to three years ago, and that's it. There's nothing net new there, yeah. and and those projects, by the way, are all on average uh, a good couple years behind schedule, uh, mm -hmm. including the projects just east of Kamloops uh, from Chase, uh, uh, from Hoffman's Bluff through Chase to, to Jade Mountain. So, but back to the uh, the community benefit agreement piece, uh, we we announced uh, about 1.3 billion dollars worth of Trans Canada four laning projects over the last four uh, the four years of our former government. Yeah. that's roughly the, the the price tag of the Patello Bridge. So, if the community benefit agreement that is to be applied to the Trans Canada Highway projects is comparable, one would think it probably will be quite similar. Mm -hmm. uh, 
mm-hmm. to what we just saw with Patello. Yeah. Uh, you're looking at uh, likely an added cost to that, that $1.3 billion of project of about $100 million. Now, I, I was not, you know, um, a math, you know, master's uh, student in university. <laughs> yeah, but, plus one. Uh, but, yeah, <laughs> but it is not possible to say that the, the previously announced scope on yeah. that $1.3 billion worth of projects yeah. will stay the same uh, if you add an additional $100 million net new cost into the mix. It's not possible. So yeah. the, they have to be in uh, scaling back mode, I would imagine, at this point in terms of figuring out how do they cut some corners, how do they reduce uh, foreign landing sections, how do they you know pull interchanges out. Where, or they where, throw more money at it. Or they have to throw more money at it. But come clean. You know, to, to say that you're accelerating these projects and the budgets aren't going to change all the while, we're not seeing acceleration. We're seeing up to two-year delays and you're adding a, a $100 million net new cost on these highway projects east of Kamloops, yeah. uh, is, is, is the best thing I can say is it's completely disingenuous yeah. uh, to the people of British Columbia. So the two-year, and the two-year delay too, is important to remember. I mean, we, we talk about existing budgets, but the cost of things rises, the cost of labor rises, the cost of living rises. So the budgets that exist today aren't necessarily going to be the budgets. And never mind all of the other stuff, just in flat out dollar value, it's not going to be the same in 2019 as it is in 2018. So it's, it's not, it, 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 it Absolutely won't be. The cost of aggregates going up. The cost of oils go- going up. And I'm speaking about highways projects yeah. in particular. And and by the way, one of the, the largest uh, costs uh, on a highways project uh, nowadays, and, and rightfully so, uh, uh, is is all of the costs related to accommodation uh, with First Nations uh, and and you know the the, the, the acquisition Premises of land and, and uh, more, uh, more women hiring labor force, yeah. hiring. Uh, pres- I, I know on the, the Trans Canada projects east of Kamloops uh, that I was responsible for, we had uh, we had we peaked at about 25 percent of the of the entire labor force were, were indigenous peoples mm. um, hired from most of the the local f- uh, First Nations, uh, which was great. Um, you know, w- would we like to see more women? Uh, yes. Would we like to see, uh, you know, even more indigenous people? Sure. Uh, but every, any any journeyman, anyone that had a skill, a trade that wanted to work on those projects, uh, you know, was was able to to uh, to to, uh, to get an interview and likely get 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 some work. Uh, so I, I, but I, again, I just keep coming back to this. Uh, you know, you, you can somehow an NDP logic uh, adds a seven percent cost to uh, to a project and uh, and still deliver it for exactly the same, you know, the expectation or the same scope as was previously announced. That's yeah. not possible. Yeah, I'd say that's unrealistic. That's a fair point. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, and you touched on a little bit there, but there's this hundred kilometer radius rule, which okay, uh, that's what, that's what we're going to apparently do. But uh, that that radius and its impact is going to be different in Metro Vancouver than it is in Prince George, than it is in Kelowna, than it is in Kamloops. And there's going to be some inherent issues built in there. I mean, I get what they're trying to do, but in the how, there's going to be some problems. Well, I, I think I think most of your listeners probably would acknowledge that uh, tradespeople uh, are pretty mobile. Yeah. Uh, whether you live in Kamloops or you live in Coquitlam, uh, if, if, you're, if, if your expertise is in some aspect of highway construction, uh, you go where the work is. And in one year, that might be a big project on Highway 16, uh, you know, up in the terrace area. Another year, it might be Trans-Canada, four-landing east of Kamloops. Uh, we are a province, and our citizens, uh, you know, people who live in this province, should all have a right to to work on or try to work on projects, regardless of where they are in this province. This this 100-kilometer rule essentially means to the people, uh, any, any tradesperson in Kamloops, man, woman, or indigenous, uh, that if, if, if you want to work on the Patello uh, project in, in the Lower Mainland, you can't. You're outside of that 100-kilometer 100, 100 uh, uh, zone. Mm. Likewise, 
you know, one of the largest projects I announced was a 400 uh, plus million dollar uh, four laning section of the Trans Canada Highway in the Kicking Horse Canyon. Uh, that's that's just uh, just west of Golden, uh, or sorry, just east of Golden. Yeah. That that project would Kamloopsians would be precluded from working on that project uh, if if uh, that same provision applies uh, going forward. So, you know, I, I think there's a heck of a lot to to unpack here. Uh, <laughs> you know, to to understand what what the the cost implications are going yeah. to be, but also what the implications are going to be on a workforce um, you know you, you you just you can't add these kinds of requirements on and not uh, not um, you know uh, uh, and, and not disclose what the you know what the consequences really are yeah uh, we only have a few minutes left I do want to touch on the uber thing because you heard what she had to say about that as well uh, troubles with the insurance delayed to 2019 in fairness I remember you were going to root out uber on the streets with private <laughs> investigators and then uh, now it became pro uber <laughs> so with that on the table and fair enough uh, what was your take on on the government stance there? I, I got the, gathered some frustration listening and watching you listen to what she had to say. Well, uh, you know, I think I think the the most important piece is this: uh, both the uh, the NDP and the BC Liberal Party uh, ran uh, in the last election, twenty seventeen, on a on a on a commitment that was pretty similar. Uh, regardless of which party was elected, ride sharing, ride hailing, whatever you want to call it, was mm. going to be on BC streets uh, by Christmas of twenty seventeen. Well, that was last Christmas. Yeah, uh, the NDP uh, became government. Uh, they then announced that they were going to uh, push their commitment from December 2017 to December 2018. That's Christmas coming up. Uh, we now learn if, you know, only weeks ago that uh, the government is pushing it off to 2019. And, and in practical terms, uh, they're only going like, to allow the acceptance of applications from ride-sharing companies in 2019, which means it's likely the spring of 2020 before you might see ride-sharing in British Columbia. As for the, the insurance product uh, and all of the related work around safety and stuff, the work is all done. Uh, we we had legislation drafted that would amend eight uh, all eight pieces of legislation uh, to to implement ride sharing. Uh, it was a, a miscellaneous statutes uh, act for the passenger transportation uh, amendments required. Um, that work was all done. And on the insurance side, ICBC developed a product. We we the product is ready to go. There's no more work to to do to 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 define that insurance product. Hmm. Uh, all that all that would would have been required was an order in council of cabinet to direct the BCUC uh, to to actually uh, imp, uh, implement um, this uh, for ICBC to implement this uh, insurance product. So the government's clearly uh, dragging its heels, delaying. They've broken their their promise on this, uh, and uh, unfortunately, it's it's British Columbians uh, in communities across the province that uh, are going to have to go uh, a, a lot longer uh, without an additional transfer transportation option. Yeah, literally an Uber issue for them. Uh, Todd, thanks so much for coming in. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, Shane. Uh, that's Campbell South MLA and former Transportation Minister Todd Stone. Uh, thanks to everybody who came on the show today. Keith Baldry, Rob Shaw, Claire Trevena, and of course Todd sitting across from me. That's it for today's version of Inside Politics. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL next Friday. Where the interior stays connected. CHNL in Kamloops is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.